It was a stormy night, and a battleship was on exercise at sea. The captain was standing on the bridge, and he was looking into the foggy night ahead of him. And suddenly, he heard the lookout shout from the observation post, there's a light on the starboard side. So the captain asked, is it moving or is it steady? And the lookout replied that it's moving, which meant that they were on a direct collision course with the other ship. So the captain quickly ran up and grabbed the ship radio and signaled to the other ship, we are on collision course, change course 20 degrees immediately. The signal quickly came back, advisable for you to change course. Infuriated, the captain immediately replied, I am a captain. Change your course now. I am a seaman, second class. You had better change your course, 20 degrees, came the reply. By now, the captain was just outraged. He, he sent back, I am a battleship. Change course or suffer the consequences. And back came the signal, I am a lighthouse. The captain changed course. You see, human beings have a remarkable ability and tendency to jump to conclusions, assuming that we know the truth of a situation when in fact we have completely misjudged it. One of the most powerful learning experiences a human being can have is that of a paradigm shift, a shift in perspective whereby we learn to see something in a fundamentally and entirely different way. This concept links to an essential insight in this week's Parsha, Shlach. In Parsha Shlach, Moshe sends the Miraglim, the spies, to scout out the land of Eretz Yisrael. With the exception of Yoshua and Kalev, the Miraglim returned with a negative report about the land, attempting to dissuade the Jewish people away from entering Eretz Yisrael. While we often view their account as a malicious libel, it doesn't seem to be the case if you read the story at the surface level. I mean, as the spies scouted the land, they actually witnessed multiple giants burying the dead. And when they returned, they reported this to the Jewish people. So Chazal explained that the Miraculum violated the prohibition of Lashon Hara, evil speech. But they didn't speak about people badly, they spoke about the land. So does Lashon Hara really apply to inanimate objects? And furthermore, the Miraculum spoke the truth. They saw people dying, they were scared, and they passed on that information. Wasn't it their job to report what they saw? Now, there is an enigmatic Gemara in Sanhedrin, and Avkavdalad on the base, which notes that although the verses in Megillus Eicha, Lamentations, run in alphabetical order, in most chapters, the verse starting with the letter Pei appears before the verse that starts with the letter Ayin, counter to their alphabetical order. Now, the Gemara explains that this reversal is due to the fact that the Miraglim put their mouth, their peh, which is the same as the word peh, mouth, as the letter peh, before their ayin, which means eye. The letter ayin also means eye. So what does it mean to put the peh, the mouth, before the ayin, the eye? What does all this mean? So let's start with a foundational principle. There are two levels of truth. The first is how things appear 
on the physical surface. The second is the meaning that lies behind that exterior, that surface level. So in the same sense, there are two levels of sight. The first is the physical sight, whereby you see the physical object itself. And the second is spiritual sight, whereby you give a meaning to that which you have seen. Improper sight is seeing only that which is on the surface without sourcing it back to its root, without seeing that which truly lies behind it. When the surface no longer reflects a deeper truth, it becomes a shell of an object, lacking any internal meaning, like a body without a soul. For example, if you were to look at someone's face and only see the flesh and bone without recognizing that there's a consciousness, a sentient being behind that surface, that would be a gross corruption of sight. Your physical sight is correct, but the meaning you have given to your physical sight is far from the truth. And similarly, when you witness an event, you have the ability to understand the meaning that lies behind the event. If, however, you don't ascertain the truth that lies beneath the surface level, you're likely to project your own personal perceptions onto the situation, twisting its true meaning to align with your subjective reality. And this is what happened with the Miraglim. The Miraglim's physical sight was perfect. But what they lacked was spiritual sight. They physically saw giants burying their dead. They, however, interpreted this to mean that the land kills its people and consumes its inhabitants. But in reality, as the Midrash explains, Hashem performed miracles to aid the Miraglim in their mission. Hashem killed off the leaders of the giants in each city so that the dwellers would be distracted, ensuring that the Miraglim would not be discovered. The death of the giants was the surface fact. The spies' fault lay in the meaning they projected onto it. And similarly, the Miraglim reported to Klyestral that when they came across the giants, we were like grasshoppers in our eyes. That's literally what the Pusuk says. They projected their fear and lack of faith onto the giants in their own eyes. The giants viewed them as grasshoppers. They weren't talking about what the giants themselves actually said or thought. They were merely projecting what they assumed the giants were thinking, reflecting their own fears and insecurities. They were no longer transmitting an account of objective reality. Rather, they were depicting and projecting their own spiritual and existential insecurities onto their experiences. And this was their twofold mistake. They not only misunderstood their physical experiences, but then projected their misunderstanding onto the report they brought back to Klai Yisrael. So we can now begin to explain why this was considered a violation of Lashon Hara. As we've explained before, speech reflects the power of connection. I mean, we are all naturally isolated and separate from one another. That's how we start out life. We're separate beings living in our own subjective world, our own inner universe, and we will never be able to experience life through anyone else's perspective, only through our own inner consciousness. We have our own thoughts, our own feelings, and these are things that no one else can see. 
We face our own hardships and tribulations and challenges and difficulties, ones that no one else truly understands. And this results in several difficulties. If I'm trapped in my own inner world, how can I connect with other people? How can I relate to them? How can they relate to me? How can I know what's going on in their heads? How can I share my inner life with them? How can I overcome this infinite barrier between myself and everyone else? And this is the power of speech. Speech allows us to connect with other people. You start with your own inner thoughts and experience and you take a deep breath and use your throat to project your words and thoughts outwards into the world. You use your mouth, your tongue, your teeth, your lips to form the specific words which will encase your thoughts as you give them concrete form. And in essence, you're basically then throwing your words out into the world in the form of vibrations. And if another person is nearby, their ears can pick up these vibrations and translate them into sound. And those sounds will form words and those words sentences. And if you speak their language, those words will take on meaning as well. And they must then keep track of all the different words and sentences, holding on to them and bringing them back from memory in order to form a complete picture of everything you just said. And amazingly, after all this is taking place, and sometimes we're not even aware that this is taking place, that person can now experience your inner world inside their own mind. That is fantastic. That is unbelievable. It's magic. And they now contain a piece of you within themselves. The barrier between your worlds has been diminished. And if you truly understand how incredible and fantastic that is, it will blow your mind. The fact that we can actually communicate ideas and consciousness. But now you can understand why Lush and Hara is so bad. Because Lush and Hara is taking the very tool of connection, speech, and using it to disconnect people from each other. When you see something negative about someone else, you have created a conceptual wall between the subject of your negativity and the person who you're speaking with. The very tool of connection has been corrupted to achieve its opposite goal. And now we can understand what the Miraculum did through speech. The Miraculum disconnected Klai Yisrael from Eretz Yisrael. Because their sin was Lashon Hara, it seems possible to suggest that they violated this prohibition even though the decision was between Klai Yisrael and an inanimate object, the land of Eretz Yisrael. However, if we take into account the deep nature and role of Eretz Yisrael and the Beis Hamikdash, then this can be understood on a much deeper level as well. Eretz Yisrael is the makam, the place where Hashem connects to this world, and it's where Hashem most intimately connects to Klai Yisrael. By using speech to disconnect Klai Yisrael from Eretz Yisrael, the Miraculum were effectively separating Klai Yisrael from Hashem. So in the deepest sense, this was the most nefarious form of Lashon Hara imaginable. And as the Ramban explains, everything the Miraculum said was true in the physical and practical sense, but they failed to see the depth beneath the surface. And this itself is the epitome of Lashon Hara. It's taking the truth itself and distorting it in order to create harm. 
Lying is a separate problem, violating the prohibition of Midvar Sheker Tirchak. Lashon Hara's evil is not in its fabrication, it's a corruption of an actual truth. The Miraglim suffered from a spiritual disease of eye and ra, an evil eye. They had sight, but no vision. They saw, but were blind. And now we can explain the nature of Pe versus Ayn. The Maharal uses these principles to explain the above-mentioned enigmatic placement of the Pe before the Ayn. Proper speech requires first developing and connecting yourself to a deep root of truth and spiritual thought, and then using speech as the mechanism of revealing that truth into the world. The third and final stage is the revelation of that truth through the form of concrete and finite words. So when Moshe transmitted the Torah, he revealed the essence of spiritual truth in the form of concretized words. The speech and ensuing words were a loyal reflection of the truth. So the letter ayin can be literally translated to mean I. And as we've developed before, the spiritual concept of seeing and sight reflect the concept of truth. When you see something, you see it as it is, in a static state lacking any movement. When you look at a picture, you grasp it instantaneously, all at once. There's no process of constructing or building the picture in your mind. Everything is just there at once without any effort. Your eye is also the organ that most loyally reflects who you are. If you are spiritually sensitive, then when looking into someone's eyes, you can peer into the depths of that person and see who they are. Seeing is believing. Seeing reflects existential truth. It's not a breakdown. It's not a process. It's not where you can potentially go wrong. It's simply static truth. And the word ayin is also connected to the word mayan, wellspring, something whose surface reveals an endless depth beneath it. One can draw forth water, the source of life, by going into the depths of the wellspring. Ayin therefore clearly reflects the concept of reaching that which is hidden, that which is higher, that which is transcendent, that spiritual truth. And the letter pay can also literally be translated to mean mouth. And the reason the ayin comes before the pay and the olive base is to portray the ideal order of spiritual speech. First, you have to connect yourself to the ayin, to that transcendent truth. And the goal of the pad, the mouth of speech, is to then take the ayin, take the truth, and express it down into this world through the medium of speech. So speech is meant to be a loyal reflection of something deeper, of that spiritual truth. That process of speaking within time, within space, is meant to be a reflection of that static truth of ayin, of sight. A corrupted ayin doesn't reflect anything deeper. A corrupted ayin sees only the physical world. That corrupted eye is disconnected from anything spiritual and transcendent. And similarly, a corrupted mouth, a corrupted pet, is a mouth that speaks without reflecting a higher eye and higher truth. 
That's what it means for the pay to come before the ayin. Because in such a case, the pay comes first. It speaks without first connecting to anything deeper. It's unwilling to source itself back to its spiritual root. And as a result, the ayin, the eye, no longer reflects the spiritual truth. This corrupted eye sees only the surface and projects itself onto that physical surface. And this was the sin of the miraglim, a corrupted eye and a corrupted speech. They were unable to see past the surface, unable to see the true depth that lay beneath the surface of Eretz Yisrael. And while in truth, this was the place where Hashem most potently connects to this world, all they saw was a physical plot of land. And as a result of their corrupted sight, their speech reflected nothing other than their ego. Their speech was lush and her, a speech that disconnected Klai Yisrael from both Eretz Yisrael and Hashem himself. So it's interesting to note that at the end of this week's Parsha, after the sin of the Miraglim, the Torah introduces us to the mitzvah of tzitzis. So you have to ask, why does the Torah introduce us to the mitzvah of tzitzis specifically at this point? Is there any connection between tzitzis and the sin of the Miraglim? Now, to understand this connection, we have to first recall an important principle we've developed in the past, which is the difference between a bent path and a straight path. So imagine you're walking along a straight path, and at any point along the path, if you turn around, you can see where you came from. However, say that the path suddenly takes a sharp turn and bends away from its straight course. Now, if you turn around, you can no longer see the starting point of your journey. And the same is true of the physical world in which we live. Originally, the physical world loyally and perfectly reflected its spiritual root. When you looked around, you saw and experienced Hashem, and you knew that He created the world. It was like looking back down a straight path. However, after Adam sinned and the world fell, the world became a bent path. And it no longer is clear where we came from. You turn around and you're like, where's Hashem? Where are we from? What's going on? And this is the secret behind Tzitzis. The Miraglim bent the straight path. They refused to connect this physical world back to Hashem. They refused to see past the physical surface. Tzitzis are only required on a cornered garment. It's fascinating, right? Why? Because it's only when the garment ends, when it begins to bend, only then are we obligated to put tzitzis on those corners. The straight lines of the tzitzis straighten the bent path of the garment. So the tzitzis represents our ability to source ourselves back to Hashem. Even on a bent path, we constrain it. And the many details of tzitzis beautifully reflect this idea. We wear treles, strings dyed a beautiful ocean blue to trace ourselves back to the sea, then to the heavens, then to the Kisei Akavot, Hashem's throne. And ultimately, this is supposed to lead us back to Hashem himself. And if you, you, you notice, it's really amazing. If you look at the gematria, 
the numerical value of the word tzitzis, it's 600. And then you add the eight strings and the five knots, you get 613, corresponding to the 613 mitzvahs that we use to connect ourselves to Hashem. And it's beyond the scope of this year, but just food for thought, Moshe had a straight mata, a straight staff, which then turned into a bent snake. And the mitzvah of mezuzah, which lies bent on the doorpost, what's going on there, right? And the copper snake on the straight mata, which overcame the, the plague, the magifa and the midbar, these are all connected topics. And they're beyond the sheer, but just think about what the themes are in each of these topics, why the bent and straight, how they relate, what caused what. But it's just important to realize that we all have our unique paradigms. The way we see ourselves, the way we experience the world around us, the way we think of Hashem. And the goal in life is to embark on a genuine journey of paradigm shifting. We all have this superpower called choice. We get to choose how we perceive reality and the meaning that we give to our experiences. And many of us have sight, but only a few among us truly see. So may we be inspired to continuously expand our horizons, to revolutionize and reconstruct our set paradigms and build deeper eyes through which we see the world.